You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Hey, everybody, don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to East Bay Yesterday, and I'm your crazy host, Liam O'Donoghue. Coming up this hour, we've got Metallica, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Sly and the Family Stone, those wacky kids from Green Day, and much, much more. Stay tuned. (laughs) Aren't you so glad I don't normally sound like that? I sort of can't believe that when I was growing up, I'd listen to radio shows where the DJs, they really did that shtick. And I thought it sounded really cool back then. But of course, times have changed, as they always do. And so has the radio and the music and the entire music industry. My guests today are Mike Katz and Crispin Cott, the authors of a new book called Rock and Roll Explorer Guide to the San Francisco Bay Area. And this book, It covers a lot of the biggest names from roughly the 1960s through the 90s, but it doesn't just rehash the same old stories. This book is kind of like an atlas that lists the venues, the studios, recording spaces, even even the homes, the houses, where groups ranging from the Pointer Sisters to Primus came up on their way to stardom. And in our conversation today, we won't just be discussing the book and the bands will also be reminiscing about how much the local scene has changed since the days when you might have caught Steve Miller playing a coffee house on Telegraph Avenue for a few bucks. So fire up those lava lamps and spark those doobies, because today we're going to turn back the clock to talk about rock. Oh yeah! All right, so I'm here on East Bay Yesterday today with Crispin Cott and Mike Katz, the authors of Rock and Roll Explorer Guide to the San Francisco Bay Area. And there's just so much information in this book. And before we really start diving into some of the specific bands that you guys went into great detail on in, uh, in this compilation here, I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about the research process. Um, because like some of the stories about, say, like the origins of Sly and the Family Stone have been well documented previously. But you guys dug up some really obscure stuff for this book. And I'm wondering how you did it. Like, for example, uh, in a section about East Bay locations called out in Green Day lyrics, you mentioned a reference to the Berkeley Marina in a song that wasn't even on one of their albums. It was on like a label comp that's like 20 years old. I think the song is like a minute and a half long. And so when you were compiling this mix of facts and obscure tidbits for these various sections, what was that process like? How did you dig up all these obscurities that you managed to, to cram into this piece? Uh, I mean, research came from everywhere. We spent a lot of time in libraries uh, looking through old telephone books and newspaper archives on microfilm. Uh, we've read countless music books of our own, and, and in the case of that Green Day thing, I spent a lot of time on message boards and forums and things like that, and then would kind of back that stuff up as well. I interviewed Corbett Redford, who kind of knows those guys, and did uh, Turn It Around, the story of the East Bay Punk uh, great documentary. Do- great documentary. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it came from a, a, a lot of different places. Checked real estate records, uh, you know, 
I mean, a lot of it, uh, I mean, having done this before with New York City, you develop a nose for what's well-known and what isn't. And when you do all of this reading, one of the things that you discover are that people have sort of borrow from each other when they're doing these biographies or these band histories and things. And you see a lot of the information repeated almost verbatim. So you begin to look for other kinds of things. Uh, and you, you, know, you start looking at their histories of people's personal lives, you know, where they went to school, who did they know, when did they meet this person, and sort of try to discern like, well, what's going to be interesting and unusual? You know, and it could be the location of this song. Well, why is that significant? Somebody went to school there or something, or somebody lived there for six months or, or whatever it was. And, you know, it's some of it is, is being like an obsessive fanboy, and then some of it is just doing some serious detective work and trying to find information that's reliable that you can um, determine is, is accurate. Yeah, and what you just said about where that takes place is such a key part of this book because... The uh, title of Explorer's Guide isn't just a fun title. It's actually, this is like a reference book that people, if they want to go on like a walking tour of places that the Grateful Dead played or Green Day or where did the Pointer Sisters grow up in West Oakland, you actually have addresses and street corners and locations so people could actually turn this book into a walking tour and go on a drive or a bike ride around the bay and see these these famous locations where the Dead Kennedys recorded or any of the many, many bands that you cover in this book. Um, what were some of the biggest surprises? You, you know, you, you just mentioned a second ago about there's been so much mythology around some of these artists. The Grateful Dead have had many, many books written about them, but you're digging into these stories looking for the things that, that maybe haven't been shared in a book or in a documentary yet. So when you were digging, what did you find that kind of made your eyebrows perk up? For me, I mean, you mentioned Sly and the Family Stone earlier. They, unlike a lot of their contemporaries from around that period, they didn't play a lot of shows in the traditional. They did play the Fillmore and Winterland and um, San Francisco Civic Auditorium, but they also played like suburban clubs and, and lounges uh, that some of them were like really corny, like Wayne Manor and Sunnyvale, <laughs> which was a, a Batman-themed club with go-go dancers that were dressed as Batgirl or Catwoman. Uh, it was the the guy who owned the club who who started it got the idea from his son who was a comic book. Nerd, oh my know, god! So I wish I could it. go back in time, take acid, and go to that show. Mm -hmm. That sounds absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. So I mean that those kind of those kind of details were fun because you know it was it was gives it gave us an opportunity to put in a place like Wayne Manor or Frenchies or or uh, Winchester Arms Winchester, Winchester Cathedral. Yeah. Uh, where you know not a lot of other bands played, but we're are an interesting part of the of the fabric of, uh, of the Bay Area music scene. Uh, so to have an opportunity to even just mention some of these you know kind of oddball places uh, that that cropped up by these uh, promoters looking to make a quick buck, like Wayne Manor, is kind of a lot of fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we're going to get into this more later in the conversation. But I'm just thinking about we're recording this interview in. Temescal Park, right on the shores of beautiful Lake Temescal in Oakland, California, and just up the hill from here in Montclair in the um, like rec center, the community center. Uh, they used to have concerts up there with people who went on to be pretty famous, like Boz Skaggs and folks like that. I, I can't remember who else off the top of my head, but somebody in one of the Oakland History Facebook groups put together a show list of all the concerts that went on up there. And it was like these bands that would go on to play stadium shows playing in this little rec center in an Oakland park. It's really amazing to think about how many more venue options there were back then. Uh, but again, we will get back to that a little bit later. I want to jump into some of the specific bands 
that uh, you guys covered in this book. And one of my favorite all-time East Bay bands is Creedence Clearwater Revival, who I didn't really know that much about growing up, kind of didn't get into them until I was, you know, later in my teens. And first hearing them, I always thought they were from the South. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got that kind of twangy, down-home style, like not quite Leonard Skinnerdy, but you know, they sound sort of like they could be from the Bayou or something like that, right? So when I found out they were from, like, the East Bay, what is it El Cerrito? El Cerrito, El Cerrito. Yeah. I, my mind was like, what? How does that compute? <laughs> and so I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about CCR's history and why they kind of have such a different style and sound from the rest of the bands that sort of came up in that hate ashbury 60s rock and roll era, like the, the Grateful Dead and, and Janice and them. What... How did CCR come together, and uh, yeah, what was their trajectory like um, coming out of the East Bay to rise to this incredible uh, peak of rock superstardom? Well, uh, the guys that ultimately formed uh, uh, Credence, you know, the Fogarty brothers, Tom and John, and then Stu Cook and Doug Clifford, all grew up in El Cerrito, and they started playing together in junior high school, like in a music class. You know, this is the late 50s. And so their conception of like forming a, a rock and roll band was sort of about like, we're going to make it, you know, we're going to do the, you know, the same thing that motivated the Beatles and, and everybody else around that time. And John learned about the recording process um, kind of on his own when he was a high school student by uh, visiting a recording studio in uh, Berkeley uh, and getting some sort of like a, a kind of an internship about how does a recording studio work and how do you make records and, and you know this is late 50s early 60s sort of technology about how it all worked and it became just like a real obsession for for him especially but for the other guys too you know they kind of went their separate ways at various times uh, you know John uh, was in the Army Reserve at one time one of the other guys was in the Coast Guard Reserve uh, Stu went to San Jose State for a while uh, but they all wound up sort of coming back together again, kind of in the mid-60s, and they had uh, a variety of different names and sort of gimmicks that they would try. Uh, they were the gollywogs for a while. They had these silly white hats that they wore. They were um, uh, called the Visions at one time. They were uh, Tommy Fogarty and the Blue Velvets. They went through all these different sort of incarnations. So by the time the world at large heard of Creedence Clearwater Revival, these guys had known each other and been playing together for almost a decade. And they really had nothing to do with the sort of ideology that imbued most of the, of the sort of San Francisco scene, the psychedelic stuff and everything. These were not like, you know, college guys who came up through the folk circuit or something. They were, uh, with the exception of Stu, who was, uh, whose father was a lawyer, they were more sort of blue collar and uh, we're just driven by the music and wanting to kind of make it, you know, as we were saying before. And um, they were very much inspired by a program that they saw in KQED uh, called The Making of a Hit, I think was the name of it. And it was uh, hosted by the omnipresent Ralph Gleason, who was a well-known music critic at the time and be later became a big champion for like Bob Dylan and the whole sort of psychedelic scene. Uh, and to some degree, largely sort of validated the whole kind of San Francisco thing as something to be taken seriously by music people. So they, so they saw this program, and John, uh, this was, a, this was a, a big deal for him. I'm going to cross over the bridge. I'm going to go to San Francisco. And I'm going to see how Fantasy Records operates, because it was like a little kind of almost like a, a, a sort of back-in-the-garage kind of an operation compared to most uh, uh, significant record labels in that day. They did mostly jazz records. 
the the most significant thing that they'd done was uh, they had done some of the early Dave Brubeck records, also a Bay Area guy, and they had done uh, Vince Guaraldi, who's known primarily today as the guy that did the Charlie Brown music a little bit after that. But, uh, uh, and John wound up getting... That, that Charlie Brown Christmas record still rocks, still stands up. Absolute classic. <laughs> Probably the best-selling fantasy record of all time, I would, I would imagine, unless it's a Credence album. But um, so they, um, and so he got a job there. He worked in the, uh, as a shipping clerk and, um, and they wound up doing a lot of demos and things there on their, in their old studio in Treat Avenue in the Mission. Uh, they did that for some time, and then ultimately the uh, the label sold to one of their marketing officers, a guy named Saul Zantz, who uh, uh, was a name that would uh, wind up being like a major player in the career of these guys, because he then signed them again and said, like, let's make some real grown-up rock and roll records here, which they did. They, they you know, wind up coming up with the name Creedence Clearwater Revival. By then, they'd been... Uh, uh, refining their chops, working at uh, college bars and stuff in Berkeley and Oakland and, and to some degree in San Francisco. That's when the Creedence Clearwater Revival, as we know them, really came to be. And this is like 1968. Wow. wow. So, so these guys had known each other for like 10 years before that. I've heard uh, when Fantasy moved across the Bay and established their studios in Berkeley, I've heard that uh, that location referred to as the house that Credence built because their records were just like, you know, paying the bills for that whole record label for, for quite a few years, I think. Absolutely. You know, by the time they built that studio, Credence was basically done. I mean, they only recorded, I think, parts of their last album there. They recorded most of their records at Wally Hyder in San Francisco. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was like, uh, uh, absolutely. They, they were paying the bills for that company. And as, we, as they discovered after they broke up, they were essentially being um, chiseled out of most of what they should have been earning because they signed a, a terrible contract. And that would sort of plague them to the present day. Not a rare story, unfortunately, in the record business. Uh, before we move on, I've got one very obscure story about uh, CCR that I heard from a gentleman who I was interviewing uh, a couple years ago. Uh, this is a guy who was living over uh, on the other side of the hills in Canyon, California, tiny little enclave tucked between Moraga and uh, Redwood Regional Park. And uh, this guy had been a carpenter, a contractor for many, many years. And he started his business in the 60s. And most of his employees were basically like young hippie guys who kind of barely knew what they were doing. He was sort of like giving them jobs as a favor. And so one of the, one of the gigs they got, one of the jobs was building a, a studio for Credence. And I don't think it was like a professional studio. Maybe it was like a practice studio or something like that. He said it was in the Haight-Ashbury. And apparently when this guy and his workers showed up there, the guys from Credence, I'm not sure who was there at the time, but uh, they said that they had a, just a giant pile of cocaine on the table. And they said to these hippie carpenter guys, like, help yourself, guys, you know, like Cokes for everyone, you know, go to town. And these guys got so messed up that they put the doorknobs on backwards. So they had to redo the whole job all over again when they realized they put the doors on. So like in a way that you wouldn't be able to open them and actually get inside the studio. <laughs> so after that, he's like, from now on, hold on till uh, the end of the job before you start partying with the rock star guys, okay? Burn the coke. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So another um, another El Cerrito band, uh, and they, they didn't live there for, for many years, but uh, I believe their house is still actually a landmark uh, in El Cerrito, uh, is Metallica. There's always been a bit of like a Northern California versus Southern California rivalry. And I, I loved it when I was reading the Metallica section of your book and you explained 
why Metallica, who started briefly in Southern California, decided to move up to the Bay Area and why they decided to stick around here for, for many, many years. Yeah, I mean, Metallica were really out of step with what was happening in Los Angeles at the time, which was sort of like a, a phony, macho version of glam, like Motley Crue and stuff, and, and these guys all just wanted to wear denim and the headbang. And so they came up to play a show at The Stone in San Francisco in September of 82, and all the fans were dressed like them, and they were just there to hear the music, and it wasn't like a lot of posturing. And they loved that. And they came back a couple of years later. They recorded uh, a live demo, which sort of became famous and helped them get signed, called Metal Up Your Ass at the old Waldorf on Battery Street in San Francisco. And then by the end of the year, they were up here for good because they connected with Cliff Burton, who uh, was a Bay Area guy. Was he from like Hayward or something? I think so, yeah. Valley, he, somewhere he, was, there? he kind of he grew up and, and was in and out of bands with some of the guys from Faith No More, I think. Mm. Um, so he said, well, I'll, I'll join, but you got to move up here. Mm-hmm. So they did. And so they moved into what they sort of uh, ironically called the Metallica Mansion, <laughs> which is this very tiny house uh, in El Cerrito. There was a garage, which is gone now. But they were there from when they moved up in late 1982 through 1986, I think. And they worked on songs and rehearsed uh, songs that would become uh, on kind of really important albums like Ride, Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. Uh, Kirk, Kirk Hammett was, uh, was a local guy as well. He grew up in the East Bay, and before that, uh, his folks had an apartment in San Francisco, which we have in the book. But yeah, so he, Kirk was also local, but, but uh, Lars and, uh, and James came up from, from Southern California basically to follow Cliff Burton so they could get him to join the band. Yeah, and that definitely makes sense when you think about Metallica in the early 80s. They were not wearing makeup and spandex and having giant feathered hairdos like, you know, some of those those L.A. guys. Yeah. It seems like they would fit in much more with the kind of like, yeah, more blue collar, hard rock, uh, East Bay scene of that era. Yeah. Switching gears again. Gosh, I love this conversation because we're just sitting on so many different sort of subgenres of rock and roll. I mean, through the years, through the decades, there's not like one sound that really defines the Bay Area, which is nice. Um, another huge star that came out of the Bay was Steve Miller. And I love this little uh, anecdote you have in the book about how when he was practicing for a series of gigs at a venue called The Forum, which was located at 2455 Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, he was practicing secretly in the basement of Worcester Hall. Like there was an unlocked room and uh, he took advantage of that unlocked room. And that venue, the Forum, later became the site of one of the Bay Area's most legendary and beloved record stores. I'm talking, of course, about Amoeba Records. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about that evolution from the Forum to Amoeba. And like, how did Amoeba get started? Because I feel like anyone who's a music fan in the Bay Area has probably seen so many great, like Amoeba's, Amoeba's kind of famous for doing these in-store shows, right? So even though it's not like a, a music venue, They've gotten incredibly big bands to play at these tiny little stages, like in between the racks of records at Amoeba. So, like, what's the Amoeba origin story? Well, I'm going to start the pre-Amoeba origin story. And that is, you were talking about Steve Miller. Yeah. He kind of made Berkeley his headquarters when he moved to, uh, to the area in 66. He had been here the year before and was sort of like there's nothing happening here. Like, this is totally overrated. And he he went back to where he came from. I mean, he's a guy who'd been around the country, uh, Texas, uh, Wisconsin, 
um, Chicago. Uh, his father was a doctor to a lot of important sort of blues artists and stuff. Oh. So he actually met a lot of these important uh, blues guitar players as a kid. And he was like kind of a prodigy. Uh, and he knew that so he was kind of like following this around and had been really a working professional musician since he was a teenager. And so he ma ultimately made it to Berkeley and he was kind of hanging with some of the guys that would ultimately become Country Joe and the Fish and stuff. And he was trying to get gigs and, and at, uh, at some of the places around they would give the people that nobody had ever heard of kind of a shot like, okay, this person couldn't make it, you know, you play. And so that was the origins of the Steve Miller Blues Band. Uh, he wound up recruiting some buddies of his who uh, he had um, played with in, in previous cities. And one of, the, one of those, of course, was Boz Skaggs, who had uh, been in Europe actually working on a solo career until Miller like, called him up and said, I need you here. So Skaggs came into the area. And um, he, was, he was practicing for uh, a big gig uh, in the basement of one of the Berkeley buildings. It was over a... Um, it was over one of the school holidays or something. And, you know, I mean, when I went to college, they used to leave all the buildings unlocked, too. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that that was, uh, and I'm not that old. So I'm not, uh, I'm not sure how, you know, I'm sure these guys knew it, and probably maybe other people used that space as well. But that, and now we move on to that building that we're talking about on Telegraph Avenue that with a sort of funky um, bowling alley shape to it. And it was originally uh, built in the... Uh, I want to say the 30s, uh, as a, it was a Lucky's grocery store. Uh, and it was the premier grocery store in um, Berkeley for a long time and served the student community. And where it gets interesting is that in the early 60s, I want to say 60, 1960, 61, uh, it was still segregated. They wouldn't hire any black people to work there. And so the student population, in coordination with a group called CORE, the Congress on, on Racial Equality, which parenthetically, is an organization that Bob Dylan became involved in uh, in New York through his girlfriend, Susie Rodolo. And uh, they, uh, in an early uh, instance of Berkeley activism, decided to, uh, uh, to do battle with Lucky's and demanded that they integrate the staff of the store. And they did things like, uh, you know, sitting in front of the store. And my personal favorite is they would fill up all their shopping carts with groceries and leave them there and walk out. And uh, eventually they succeeded actually in uh, enforcing uh, Lucky's, uh, which still exists as a name, as it, although I think the ownership is completely different from, uh, from what it was back then, to integrate the staffs in, in the entire Bay Area. But then as, like a, as an act of spite or something, they closed that location. So screw you, Berkeley, you know. And, um, and then it went through a succession of different kinds of things. And at one point, it was this sort of Roman-themed espresso bar called The Forum. And that's where uh, Steve Miller got this gig being, you know, the, the house band, you know, the Steve Miller Blues Band. And uh, he did that for quite some time before he was able to start getting gigs, gigs at places like the Fillmore. And then it went through a succession of restaurants and things like that before, and I'll pass it off to Crispin here. Uh, Amoeba was founded by some former uh, employees of Rasputin Records who just kind of wanted to do their own thing, like Mark Weinstein, who is still co-owner of Amoeba today. Uh, and they founded in Berkeley in 1990. Uh, but it was a bunch of uh, former Rasputin Records employees who said, let's, let's do this. And they've, they've either worked uh, you know, in synergy with or in competition with each other ever since then. Yeah. When I uh, first moved to the Bay, I had to basically forbid myself from going into Amoeba Records because even if I was totally broke, which I often was and had like $20 to my name, 
I would be like leaving with records, whether I liked it or not, just because there would always be something there where I'm like, oh my God, I'll never find this again. Mm -hmm. I've got to get it, even if I'm not eating dinner for the next three nights in a row. And it's just one of the all-time great record stores, I think in the world, really. I don't think that's overstating it. I have, uh, those, I have those same stories and, and, <laughs> and from when I lived in San Francisco a couple times. And, and so for me, it was a big thrill personally that they started carrying our book. I mean, you know, they, oh, it makes awesome. sense to be in there, but I'm like, wow, I used to come in here and, and blow what was left of my money. Yeah. And then, you know, be eating ramen for three weeks straight. <laughs> and now they're actually selling our book and selling pretty well from what I understand. That's awesome. Mike, were you going to add something I was, to I was going to ask a question. Where does, do we know where the Amoeba name came from? Because it sounds like almost like a name that they would have come up with in the 60s or the 70s or something. I mean, when I went to college, our records, our college record store was called The Mushroom, <laughs> which incredibly still exists. So I was just kind of, you know, since it, it started what, 1990, is that what it was? Like where that name came from, but we don't know. I'm not sure. We'll have to look into that, and I, I can post it in the show notes because there's got to be a story behind that. There's got to be. So. But yeah, it makes me think of like you know that kind of like lava lamp aesthetic of the '60s for sure. Definitely those uh, psychedelic screens and whatnot. So this book is broken up into these different um, geographic chapters: San Francisco, Berkeley, you know, Oakland, etc. Uh, but one of the things that becomes really apparent from reading it is that a lot of these groups that were considered, like for example, San Francisco bands, um, had really deep connections to other parts of the Bay. Their rehearsal spaces were over here, or you know, they used recording studios here, etc. Or even band members, you know, like. Um, East Bay Ray, of course, would be a good example from the Dead Kennedys. Uh, that's an obvious one. Larry Graham, famous uh, inventor of the slap bass technique from Sly and the Family Stone, uh, lived in Oakland for quite a few years. Uh, the Escovedo brothers, who went on to play with uh, Carlos Santana. Um, I talked about them a little while ago in a different episode about the California Hotel and their famous uh, Mambo Nights on San Pablo Avenue. But um, what I'm getting at is that, you know, it's not easy to draw a clear distinction between the different regions, you know, South Bay, North Bay, city, the town, etc. But from all the listening and research and, and analyzing that you guys have done, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the different sort of, uh, you know, the Bay has these, we talk about microclimates when it comes to weather, but I'm wondering if you've identified any sort of microclimates when it comes to, to music as well. I mean, I, that sort of thing kind of coalesces around if, if there's a specific venue, like 924 Gilman, a lot of, you know, the, the Oakland punk scene and the, Bay, and the East Bay punk scene came out of that one area, although not entirely because they played a lot of warehouses and other things. Uh, but, but I think what's, what kind of gets lost when people start talking about the, the, the sort of those San Francisco bands is that virtually none of them sounded alike. A lot of them jammed and everything, but like the Grateful Dead didn't sound like Jefferson Airplane, didn't sound like Big Brother and the Holding Company, didn't sound like Santana, or Creedence Clearwater Revival, or Sly and the Family Stone. And they kind of all brought in their own various influences from wherever they came from. And like even the Dead, they, they started in Palo Alto. They, they're not even technically a San Francisco band until they moved out of that, that ridiculous house on Ashbury. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it all is just kind of like, uh, it, it all comes from a lot of different places and it becomes the sound when it's one band. Uh, and that certainly, um, again, all those bands are, are very dissimilar when you actually sit down and listen to them. Mike, what about you? Anything you want to add to that question about different microclimates of music in the Bay Area? How did you guys settle on the um, you know, designations that you chose uh, in, the, in the way that you laid it out? Well, I mean, it took a while to sort of settle on the geography of like what we were going to cover. I mean, because the Bay Area is not like New York City where we could limit it to the five boroughs and that's basically it. 
instead, we sort of looked at and learned, I mean, how interrelated all the different parts of the Bay Area are and some of the things that you referred to earlier. You know, the bands had uh, uh, members and or rehearsal spaces or various venues that they played in or roots in other parts of the Bay. Down into the peninsula, a lot of these 60s artists came up as folk musicians playing at the college circuit, uh, and a lot of them knew each other from there. And, uh, and then there was, there was also a, uh, there were other scenes that kind of developed in parallel, like the one in Berkeley, which, you know, which was mostly a kind of folk thing until a little bit later. And, uh, and then, of course, Oakland has R&B roots going back to the early 20th century. And uh, we wanted to explore that as well. I mean, even before it's the sort of, before the, the kind of, and I'm using air quotes here, classic San Francisco sound, this is critical to the formation of what rock and roll became. And so we, we needed to include that. You know, there was, a, there was an interesting collection of, of jazz and R&B and blues and all of those things that came from the East Bay, largely because that's where most of the black population lived. Uh, there was a period beginning in the 40s uh, during World War II where um, the Fillmore became a, an important black entertainment area, and, and that had an incredible uh, dramatic effect uh, in terms of introducing a lot of great artists to the area, people like Etta James. And then, of course, that sort of got crushed sometime later uh, through... Uh, Urban, you know, urban renewal. Urban renewal. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, we wanted to tell some of those stories. And you were yeah. talking before about some of the surprises that we discovered in the book. For me, I didn't grow up in the Bay Area, and I wanted to kind of force-feed myself as much sort of socio-political history of the area as I could before I really started digging into the musical stuff, because I like trying to sort of tell things in, within an historical context. Because the music stuff didn't just happen by accident. There were all sorts of external reasons why these things blossomed the way that they did. And uh, one of the things about the Fillmore that is uh, that was sort of like, it's kind of horrifying when you kind of piece it together, is that had uh, you know the Japanese-American citizens in that area not been forcibly removed at the outbreak of World War II, it would not have become a black entertainment area. Uh, and then it did, and then, of course, that sort of uh, was dismantled, you know, by the establishment. Uh, there, were, there were various reasons why. And um, the Fillmore uh, Auditorium, which became the, um, the premier venue for the entire scene, I mean, that was Bill Graham's crown jewel, at least for a while, uh, that was originally established by a guy named Charles Sullivan as, a, as the premier black entertainment venue in the city in the early 50s. And had he not done that, had he not established it as such, it could not have become, you know, the Fillmore of rock and roll myth. Right, and I believe his murder is still unsolved to this day, Charles Sullivan. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that point of tracing the origins of rock and roll back to a lot of this black music um, coming from the South in the early 20th century. West Oakland famously had a thriving blues scene along 7th Street that, similar to the trajectory of the Fillmore in San Francisco, was annihilated through urban renewal. Uh, highways, BART, this giant post office project really wiped out those clubs, that whole neighborhood, and uh, decimated what had been an absolutely thriving music scene. And for anybody that uh, wants to dig more into that history, there's a great documentary that came out a couple years ago called Evolutionary Blues, and it really gets goes deep and goes into depth on some of these people like Johnny Talbot, uh, Jimmy McCracklin, Sugar Pie DeSanto, Lowell Folsom, I mean, a guy, and 
I should also mention one more thing. If anyone still wants to see some of these amazing musicians play, Eli's Mile High Club, still after all these years, uh, they weren't doing Blues Nights for a while, but after the new owner took uh, Eli's back over a couple years ago, shout out to Billy, he brought back Blues Nights on Mondays, and you can still see some of these guys that were playing. And uh, I'm not sure if they've still got anyone play who was around in the 50s, but definitely guys who were playing blues in the 60s and 70s still coming up in West Oakland uh, to Eli's on Monday nights and just rocking the house. Those are some really, really fun shows. There was, there was a third important uh, blues nexus that uh, was in Richmond as well, like a little more sort of working class maybe than what you had in Oakland. These were the guys that worked at the Kaiser steel mills and stuff and the shipyards and, and that sort of stuff and um some of the same artists you know the uh the um places were uh maybe a little uh, a little raunchier or a little more blue collar uh, yeah, the juke joints like savoy club and mini Lou's and places like that absolutely we identified a, a number of those places but ultimately most of that stuff didn't wind up making it into the book simply because of space and time constraints and and uh but uh, i wanted to mention it here because it is uh, it is important we do cover a lot of West Oakland stuff, though, and a lot of not some, a lot of the artists you mentioned, like Sugar by DeSanto, and so they're they're in the book as well. You know? Gosh, now that we're kind of on this subject of the sort of like lost blues history of the Bay Area, there's another uh, nexus of blues clubs that was also kind of wiped off the map, where Hayward is now. It was called Russell City. And this was like one of the only black neighborhoods in the Alameda County suburbs. And it was unincorporated and it was a tiny little, um, not even much of a town. I think it was basically just like a couple blocks of um, low-income housing right almost near the bay. And uh, that was sort of like one of the only places that outside of Richmond and Oakland, San Francisco in Northern California here, you could see blues singers. But again, uh, as soon as the developers came, uh, the, the white uh, politicians and city leaders who were in charge decided that Russell City wasn't part of their plan for the future. And uh, I mean, there's not even a trace of it left anymore. It's too familiar. That kind of story is all too familiar. Absolutely. Speaking of things that no longer exist. Uh, I wanted to get your guys' opinion on the, this issue of venues. Um, because looking through this book, there's just so many examples of the famous, you know, coliseums and stadiums and clubs, but also so many of these bands, when they were starting out, played pizza parlors, bowling alleys, rec centers, church basements, VFW halls. I mean, all these kind of like off the uh, grid type venues that... It, it feels like don't exist to the same extent that they used to anymore. I mean, even when I first uh, moved to the Bay Area about 20 years ago, um, I was seeing a lot of uh, shows in like Oakland warehouses, for example. And, you know, especially post Ghost Ship, that's not really something that happens that much these days. But even before Ghost Ship, uh, the real estate values going up were putting these venues basically on the chopping block, um, plus the cannabis industry coming in and turning a lot of them into grow operations, etc. But I'm wondering if you can talk about some of those bigger trends that affected the uh, trajectory of venues in the Bay Area, because why aren't there as many places hosting music as there used to be? And it just feels limited now, especially for you know the all ages types clubs that would host a real diversity of music instead of just one style or one genre night after night. Well, probably a lot of those places have become corporatized. And as you said, uh, you know, rents have kind of gone sky high as, as, as the Bay Area of the 60s and 70s when, when bands could, like a band like the Grateful Dead could be as in that ridiculous house I talked about. 
you know, before anybody knew who they were. And they could, you know, they could play free shows on the back of a flatbed truck in the panhandle and then go back there and make no money, and it was okay. You can't do that now. There's no band on the planet other than, you know, the, the very few that sell out stadiums now uh, that could afford a place like that in the Bay Area anymore. But also, you know, a lot of these smaller places, uh, Scottish Rites Temple, for example, mm -hmm. um, they've sort of like, uh, instead of hosting shows, by they, they were a place that hosted Fugazi, which... Uh, Fugazi and MC Hammer. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. What kind of... Not on the same what, night, but... <laughs> yeah, that would be that would quite be a lineup. Yeah. Well, I think that they're, like that place in particular, they rent out their space for weddings now. And it's probably easier to clean up after a wedding, generally. Not all weddings, but yeah. uh, I have been to a few rowdy weddings. <laughs> but uh, but it's probably easier to clean up after one of those than it is after a, after a hardcore show or something. There's just, you know, there's no profit in it for them. And ultimately, yeah. that's what it comes down to. You know, a lot of these places have kind of uh, shifted to meet the marketplace. Right. And uh, I would imagine just with uh, liability insurance being what it is. And, you know, there's been a lot of stories lately about how um, Oakland, the permitting process where you had to hire off-duty police as mm -hmm. security guards. And they are not cheap to do that. Um, you know, a lot of the things that used to be sort of off the books or underground are just so exposed these days, whether it's through social media or just the fact that there's essentially surveillance everywhere yeah. <laughs> these days, I would imagine it's, it makes it harder to get away with, well, you know, and, and, what we used to see. And you mentioned Ghost Ship. I mean, that draws attention, too, that, that uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, for places that are, that are able to operate without anybody getting hurt, yeah. uh, that's still drawing it un unnecessary attention on these places and, and making it harder for them to, uh, to, you know, to have fun. I wonder if this lack of this... Because... For bands to emerge out of a scene, you need this whole ecosystem, like a pipeline where, like you said, bands can start out by playing on the back of flatbeds and trucks or in pizza parlors or these tiny venues and basements and things like that. And that's the first step on the ladder before you can climb that ladder and get to clubs and then bigger and bigger venues if that's the kind of career you're going for. But in, in if you can't get on that first rung of the ladder, you know, you're basically not going to climb it. So just thinking back from the 60s kind of up through the 90s, there were so many superstars that came out of the barrier. Like we've been talking about Creedence Clearwater Revival, Sly and the Family Stone, Grateful Dead, the Pointer Sisters coming out of West Oakland, Metallica, uh, Green Day, MC Hammer, I think was the first rapper to sell 10 million records to go diamond. And since then, um, you know, there's a lot of great artists still in the Bay Area um, that, that I really enjoy that are local that came up here and have stayed here. But a lot, it seems like a lot less than there were. And I'm wondering if you feel like that has a lot to do with it. Just like the contracting of venues and also maybe the corporate control of the venues that still do exist. Well, and beyond that, there's also the, the, the contracting of the record industry itself. I mean, you don't, you just don't really have artists like that anymore. And, 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 a, and a band doesn't have to, or an artist doesn't have to play in a venue anymore. They can play on TikTok and become famous. You know, it's, it's, they can do it from their own house. Uh, and a lot of a lot of people who are selling millions of records now are people who kind of came up through the internet. Yeah, scenes are harder to come by, or maybe not harder to come by, but they're harder to as a as a gateway necessarily to becoming the next Green Day or Metallica or Jefferson Airplane or whoever. You know, playing these small venues may not may not be that kind of path anymore. Yeah, yeah. Mike, were you going to say something? No, I, I mean he raises a very interesting point. I mean, we're talking about the demise of a lot of these sort of smaller starter kinds of places to play. And I mean, if you look historically, you know, we learned this looking at New York and we learned it certainly studying the Bay Area. Most music venues just don't last. Uh, there are too many moving parts. There are too many people who need to make money based on it. Uh, you talk about liability insurance. Uh, uh, they, I think uh, Chet Helms basically lost the lease at the Avalon Ballroom because neighbors complained it was too loud. 
you know, people out on the streets and stuff. And, and of course, that's still happening throughout, you yeah, know, yeah. San Francisco and, and Oakland as well. Right. And also, I mean, and to, to kind of uh, pontificate maybe a little bit, I think that in some ways enjoying music is, has become less of a social activity than it once was. You know, even the playing records, most people sort of like listen to this music themselves through their earphones or they watch TikTok or they watch, you know, things on the Internet and stuff. Whereas you used to have to, you had to sort of go somewhere to hear this and often had to go somewhere to, to hear anybody play the records even. I, it's, it's like people sort of learn about the music in an insular kind of a way. And then if they sort of choose to take that next step, then they have to sort of go someplace to hear these people live. And as you said, there are sort of fewer places to hear, you know, the less well-known musicians because they're just not lucrative enough to maintain. And to a lot, and a lot of, I think it's all about the money, really. But also, like, the music industry, even live, is like geared toward these big shows and festivals. Like every city has like multiple festivals with huge touring bands coming through, and that kind of takes away a lot of the energy and the money that people might spend going to see bands in smaller venues. Right. I think people who aren't in the industry might not be aware of this, but a lot of those big festivals have uh, clauses in the contracts that prevent those bands mm -hmm. from playing within like 50 mile or 100 mile or 200 mile radius. Yeah. So if the band you want to see is coming to the Bay and the only show they're playing is outside lands and the ticket is $300 and you don't want to see all the other bands on the venue or on the, uh, on the bill, you've either got to, you know, you got to fork over that money some way or another, or you're kind of out of luck because they're not allowed to come over and do, you know, a show here at the Fox Theater or something like that in mm -hmm. Oakland. Um, I, I, I feel like I need to give a shout out to um, bands like Green Day, though, that even despite having reached like the peak of rock superstardom are still playing just um, in the last three months. I think they've played two shows in the Bay Area. One was at the, the baseball stadium where the Giants play, which changes its name every couple of years. And so I can, like, is it Coracle, currently Oracle Park? <laughs> uh, it'll probably, by the time this episode comes out, it'll probably change its name again. But uh, so, so they've played a show at Oracle Park, which holds like, you know, I don't know, 30,000 people or something like that. And then uh, at the Golden Bowl at the corner of 14th and Broadway in downtown Oakland, which holds maybe like 100 people. I think that's a good summary of Green Day's career because throughout the years, no matter how big they've gotten, they're still going around and playing block parties in Oakland or um, before they got really big, they were playing like people's backyards, practically crawl spaces. I mean, yeah. I think that they've probably more than any other band besides maybe the Grateful Dead have played like just about every single venue you could possibly think of in the Bay Area. Is there anyone else you can think of that even comes close to that? Those, those, it's hard to imagine anybody playing as many places and as many gigs as either of those bands, Green Day and Grateful Dead. I mean, Green Day almost, Grateful Dead did a lot of jamming, so they weren't really trying to tighten up like Green Day did. But Green Day, you know, they, they played everywhere. And when they were, then when they signed and they wouldn't let them play 924 Gilman, they still played everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but they you know they treated like these gigs like becoming the Beatles. I know people people who are still upset at Yoko Ono breaking the Beatles up for whatever reason. Uh, they would treat they would think that's heresy to make any comparison to the Beatles by Green Day. But they would play tons of gigs and they got really tight and really good, just like the Beatles did in Hamburg, uh, by playing a lot. And they have, they grew up here. They've stayed here, Green Day, and they uh, they continue to support local venues and play these small gigs, whether as Green Day or with the various side projects that they have going on. And they're always around when they're not, you know, touring in Europe or Japan or whatever. They're, they're playing small places, uh, which, is, which is very cool. 
Yeah, you can. It's not uncommon to like bump into Billy Joe at one, two, three, four, go records right on Fortieth uh, and Telegraph there. So it's it's pretty cool that despite them being at that level, you know, you can still bump into those guys and they're still kind of giving back to the local scene. They sell our book at one, two, three, four, go records too. Give them a shout out. I love that store. Awesome. I, I yeah. walk there all the time from from our place. Yeah. It's a great place. Um, just kind of backing up a second, I was sort of asking about um, this question about like, is it still possible for big performers to come out of the Bay Area music scene, despite the fact that all these industry issues and the contraction of venues and whatnot. But there has been a couple of people who have sort of broken through to that next level in the last, um, you know, 10 years or so. I'm thinking about people like Kalani, Kamaya, you know, who are both rappers from, or, you know, Kalani's uh, more R&B, but Kamaya is a rapper and they're both originally from Oakland. Um, you know, g Easy's from the East Bay and he's pretty massive now. Uh, on the rock side of things, like the OCs have gotten pretty big, but all those artists moved away. It's kind of like they hit the uh, ceiling of how big they could get in the Bay Area and then, you know, went to Atlanta or L.A. or, you know, different parts of the country like New York that have a more established music industry. And so I'm wondering, do you think it's still possible for artists to kind of make it big and while staying in the Bay, given the limitations of the infrastructure around here? It's possible uh, that it hasn't happened in a while. doesn't mean it's not possible. But there are, there are plenty of artists who uh, have success on whatever their, their terms are. Yeah. Uh, they may not be selling out Oracle Park or whatever it's called today. Yeah. But, uh, but they, uh, they, Shannon and the Clams are from this area, and they're, they're very popular and doing their own thing. And they're not, they're not selling out stadiums, but I think that they would... They would you know, agree that uh, that they're doing pretty well and, and they have a lot of fans and they're able to get uh, noticed from out here. So, you know, I, I think it's just depending on, on how you define uh, popularity and stardom and, and fame or whatever. That's a great example. And another person who I just thought of is uh, Fantastic Negrito, who grew up here and then lived in L.A. for a long time and has been back in Oakland for a couple of years. And he's another guy that you'll actually still see literally playing on street corners, even though he's won two Grammys. I've seen him playing free shows along Broadway and Telegraph during you know, the first Friday Art Murmur events. Of course, this was pre-COVID, but... Um, He's still really giving back to the local community. Just opened a uh, recording studio, I believe, next to the California Hotel on San Pablo. So um, that, things like that do give me hope that there's always uh, churn happening that, you know, even though some older establishments like Fantasy Records have closed in the last couple of years, there's new things sort of coming up through the pipeline that uh, maybe are good incubators for the next generation of rockers and rappers and, and DJs, you know, who are coming up in the Bay Area music world. I mean, we've talked about it a couple times before, but a lot of it is the way that music reaches its audience in the first place. You know, radio was incredibly powerful for a long, long time. And record companies were incredibly powerful for a long, long time. And they could almost sort of engineer these superstars in a way. They could get behind somebody and devote money and resources and get them these gigs and kind of, uh, and almost sort of like will them uh, to success. Didn't always work, but, uh, but it often did. And people had less choice. There were less places to sort of get their music from. You know, that now there's, you know, with technology, the whole, uh, the whole scenario is completely different. I mean, there's streaming there's uh, various other venues on the internet and things. So I think that, you know, the, the way that sort of superstars of the past kind of came to be, that that sort of, that particular industry paradigm doesn't really work the same way anymore. And I think that we're in a, a kind of transitional period. And, and I think there, there will be people who are very big, but, it, uh, but how they get there is just going to be, it's not going to work the same way. It's going to be a little bit different. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And and I think, you know, one of you guys made the point earlier about how a lot of uh, the stars now didn't go through that pipeline. They went straight from, you know, SoundCloud to blowing up to, you know, selling out like the Warfield and things like that, which is in some ways uh, a positive development because you don't have to play the industry games as much. If you've got talent, people will notice you maybe. And certainly there's some luck involved, but uh, that is uh, exciting, I'm sure, for kids to know that if they write a great song in their bedroom, you know, there's not those barriers between them and reaching an audience. Yeah, I mean, the whole way that the entertainment industry was managed by things like record labels and uh, booking companies and uh, management firms uh, and, of course, radio stations and things and, and how to get these people on television and get them in front of people, all of that just works completely differently now. Mm. So you can't compare today's artist against, say, you know, how did, uh, uh, you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival get so big so quickly? Uh, we're going to have to see how it evolves. So even though I really enjoyed your book, it made me a little bit sad, too, in the sense that I was so envious looking at some of the concert flyers because I should add for people that haven't actually laid eyes on the book yet that it's not just uh, text. There's just an amazing collection of uh, photos, but almost I think my favorite thing um, visually in the book is the flyers, you know, seeing the, these, just the design and the the cost, you know, imagine seeing some of these bands for like $5 or $6, but uh, God, it just made me so envious. And um, thinking about these people that went on to be superstars playing at these tiny little intimate venues for, for so little money, um, like imagine seeing the Doors play on top of Mount Tam, which was one of the flyers in the book, or like Operation Ivy opening up for Fugazi at the women's building in the Mission. Uh, another show that is kind of in my mental list of like, oh my gosh, if I could go back and if I had the time machine, this would be at the top of uh, my, my bucket list is Nina Simone playing at the Rainbow Sign in the Berkeley, which was this little tiny community center. Just absolutely insane. So I'm going to put you guys on the spot here. What are some dream shows in the Bay Area, you know, whether you included them in the book or not, that if you had the time machine and you could go back and check out a couple of these gigs, uh, which ones would you, would you be first in line for? Well, I would, you know, love to uh, have, you know, been able to go to like the Fillmore or the Avalon Ballroom back in the, the sort of golden times. You know, uh, Paul Kantner has a sort of famous quote where he said, uh, nobody went to the Fillmore to see a band. You sort of went there because like that's where it was happening and that's where all your friends were and that's where you were like on the cutting edge of whatever the hell all this was. And, you know, you might see three or four bands that night. You might see Santana and Steve Miller and Big Brother and the Holding Company and John Lee Hooker or something, you know, and um, it was just uh, it was just a scene with a capital S. Uh, some of the other things I would have loved to have seen, and we, we talked uh, quite a bit about Credence, is they played for a couple of years kind of um, refining themselves at, uh, at a joint in Berkeley called the Monkey Inn, where they really became that band, you know, where John took over as the main songwriter, the main singer, and they kind of finalize their lineup, you know, their four-man lineup of the, of the band that they were going to be. I, you know, I would have loved to have seen them then, like, you know, dodging waitresses and stuff and, uh, and people dropping drinks and, you know, college people, like, being college people and stuff. I mean, that would have been fascinating to see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Crispin, what about you? Dream shows. 
I would love to have seen uh, Sylvester open for David Bowie at uh, at Winterland. Oh my uh, god! Which apparently he was so. This was pre-disco, so he was with the Hot Band. Uh, he he was so over the top and and everything that uh, Bowie was like, the San Francisco doesn't need me. They've they've got Sylvester. <laughs> like that's a very that's amazing. That's a very f- famous. I don't know if it, I don't know if it's a real quote, but he said yeah. they don't need me there. Uh, I would love to have seen that. I'd love to go see, have seen Operation Ivy at Green Day at 924 Gilman, but the great thing about that place is it's still there. They're not, I don't think they're open yet, or maybe they're just opening, I'm not sure. It's been a while since I checked, but you can still go and have that experience because, you know, they still run by their same uh, ethos that that they were founded on. And uh, you can see great bands there all the time, which is uh, kind of exciting, even for an old guy like me. That's such a funny venue, too, because, you know, I grew up reading Maximum Rock and Roll when I was in high school in the Chicago area, and I had built up Gilman in my mind as being just like this mecca of punk music, and the first time I went there, I was like, oh, this is it? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, from the outside, it looks like nothing special, yeah. you know? And then you go, and I mean, it's a cool club, don't get me wrong, I, I have a lot of love for Gilman, um, you know, shout out to everyone that's been keeping it going all these years, but uh, it's kind of like just a standard punk club that hasn't changed except for the fact that you know they they don't sell alcohol and they've got like the volunteer policy and everything like that so it is amazing that they've you know stuck to those values for all these years but yeah going um and seeing uh shows there in the kind of like heyday of late 80s early 90s when that was really like the the center of the punk rock universe in the united states as punk rock was ascending to the level of warp tour superstar i mean all these bands were coming out of there uh that would have been really something special Well, you cram a ton of great bands and flyers and stories into this book, but I'm sure that there's stuff that you had to leave on the cutting room floor. You mentioned a little bit earlier that there was some, uh, you know, some of the blues musicians, for example, from Oakland uh, that were kind of outside the parameters of this Rock and Roll Explorer guide. But uh, I'm wondering if there's any other musicians or bands or stories that uh, didn't quite make it into the book that uh, you want to give a shout out to during this conversation here on uh, East Bay yesterday. The whole thing that we feel makes this book work is that it's it's relatively slim, it's affordable, you can carry it around with you in your backpack, and we don't want to create an encyclopedia. And uh, so things get left out. I mean, the other stuff that really kind of bothered me a lot that I didn't really get to, to some degree, is the more contemporary R&B scene in Oakland. You know, uh, Raphael Sadiq is a fascinating guy and has a, an incredible history. And I was kind of in the early stages of doing a lot of the detective work there, and we really just didn't have the time or the space to do it. I mean, and Vogue, one of the biggest girl groups uh, ever, we didn't really get to that. Crispin, what about you? Any uh, bands, musicians that you kind of were thinking that might fit in the book that just didn't quite make it for whatever reason? We got we we have some that uh, that maybe we didn't give as much coverage as I would have liked, like Country Joe and the Fish. Uh, they we could have probably given them a lot more space, but uh, we only had so much room. Um, Primus, you know, we got Primus in there. They're an East Bay band, but Elsa Bronte is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, and in fact, like uh, like with the Green Day stuff, we kind of focused on some of the lyrics uh, and the locations of the places in the lyrics, which is kind of fun. The book is called Rock and Roll Explorer Guide to the San Francisco Bay Area. Mike Katz and Chris Mancott, any last words, anything else that you want to share with the listeners of East Bay yesterday that they, you think that maybe they should know about the history of East Bay music and uh, why it's worth looking into. 
there's a lot more to the story than uh, than just that you know sort of four or five year period at the end of the 60s uh, and we cover a lot of it well guys it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today hopefully this pandemic is over soon so we can go back to uh rocking out and uh maybe i'll see you guys in the pit <laughs> one of these days soon i can't think of anything i would i would want more uh these days <laughs> all right uh that's gonna do it take care thanks again for coming on the show today. thank you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. In case you haven't noticed, I've been releasing more episodes than usual lately. And the reason I've been able to do that is because of the people who support this show through my Patreon page. So if you're one of those amazingly generous folks, thank you. It feels incredible to know that all of you want me to keep making this show. And if you're not a supporter yet, but you want to be, check out the donate link at eastbayyesterday.com. And as always, while you're there, you can also find links to all my social media channels and my newsletter to sign up. That'd be great. I do have a couple upcoming events, so um, that's where you'll find out about it. Uh, For this episode's music, you heard clips from Creedence Clearwater Revival, Metallica, the Steve Miller Band, Dave Depper, Green Day, Operation Ivy, Sylvester, and Jawbreaker. Okay, that's going to do it. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.